Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I am here today with Dr. Joe Arpea. Uh, Dr. Arpea is a psychiatrist. Uh, he is an MD. He is married to a veterinarian. I uh, picked up on his article. I put a link in the show notes. Uh, it is called uh, Stop Doing Your Best. And I thought, what is this? And Dr. Arpea makes a stress related recommendation about maybe why it's not best to always do our best and he breaks that down and talk about what that means and how do you balance that and uh the physiological impacts of stress and how stress and strain work on our bodies and kind of how we can maybe get around that a bit i thought it was a really useful conversation it made me think a bit about how i structure my day and what i do with my time guys i hope you'll enjoy it let's get into this episode this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke welcome welcome to the show dr joe arpea thanks for being here oh you're welcome thanks for having me on oh it's, it's my pleasure you are a psychiatrist and your wife is a veterinarian, and I sort of uh, came across your work in uh, today's Veterinary Business magazine, where you had written a, a column just um, just a month or so ago. Well, actually, no, this is back earlier in 2021, called Stop Doing Your Best. And I want to get into that in a minute. But but your, you, your main area of interest is in uh, treating stress and stress-related conditions, correct? Yes. Let's um, let's go ahead. Can we can we go ahead and start uh, this discussion by talking about stress and how we perceive stress uh, and and sort of the I guess the interface in in stressful jobs and how we respond to them. Sure, sure. That's a great place to start. So when we we think about stress, let's say I have a stressful job. So I go in and say I'm under a lot of stress. That's one way we use the word stress. Mm -hmm. Then in the moment we may say I'm feeling stressed. And then later on in the day when we're exhausted, we might say, I'm stressed out. Mm -hmm. And we're using the same word stress, but these are subjectively quite different experiences. When we say I'm under a lot of stress, we're referring to generally the tasks that we have to do or the demands we're facing compared to the resources we have to deal with them. So if I you know, in the morning, I go into the office or if the veterinarian goes into the clinic, and a couple of staff have called in sick, that's more stressful in the sense that now there's all the demands of the day, but the resources are less. So I call that difficulty. You can roughly think of it as the ratio of demands over resources. So when you have fewer resources, then it's more difficult. And if you have more resources, the difficulty goes down as long as the demands stay the same. Or if demands go up, of course, difficulty goes up unless resources go up to, to compensate. The other component of stress, when we say I'm, I'm feeling stressed, usually we're referring to something different than just the tasks or the demands or the lack of resources. There's, it, it has to do with our desire to achieve something or our aversion to a particular outcome or trying to avoid something. I, you might think of desire as having, uh, wanting something we don't have, mm -hmm. and aversion as having something we don't want. And the combination of those, I call it unease because it's, it's, it's not an emotion, it's, 
it's something even more primal. If I'm just, eh, I don't like this. There's that's aversion, and it makes us uneasy, and we want to try to fix it. We want to try to make the aversion go away. Or, hmm, I'd really like that. It we there's this desire to get whatever that is, and until we get it, we're uneasy. And when we get it, the unease goes down. Mm-hmm. Now. As we go through the day and we're dealing with, you know, dealing with difficulty, dealing with unease, it affects our energy level. So these are all phenomenological. I'm, this is a phenomenological approach. I'm not using, I'm not saying it's energy is this neurotransmitter or this chemical in the body, just how we feel. Yeah. And so the, the energy, go, we, we feel more and more drained. So we go through the day, the first hour we're good, the second hour we're okay as it goes, time goes on our reserves go down. So we have these energy reserves and they're going down. And that's, that's when we start saying, I'm feeling, str- I'm stressed out. I'm depleted. My reserves are down. Between the experience of difficulty and unease and the, those energy reserves, we've got two processes, which I actually think they're, 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 there's a lot of brainstem activity here. One I'll call activation, and it's largely sympathetic activation. But there's like our body's hitting the gas. It's pushing a gas pedal to get energy out of the reserve so we can meet the demands and we can reduce the unease. So we have this stress, which is a combination of demands and difficulty and unease. And we activate in order to pull energy out of our reserves. And we're able to meet those demands, reduce our unease. And the problem with activation is it drains reserves. So we have this other, uh, this other system, what I call modulation, which is largely parasympathetic activity, which helps us restore our reserves. So we get to rest. And as we rest, our activation, sympathetic activation comes down and we recharge our reserves and we're back and ready for the next day. And this goes, and this goes on and on and on. And that's, you might say, is life. We meet, we handle difficulty, we reduce unease, we use energy to do that. And then when we need to rest, we reduce our activation, increase this modulation or parasympathetic system, and we recharge. Yeah. So it seems like a sort of a, a stress cycle, if you will. Right. And that, you might say the stress response system. And that's very effective. It's, I mean, I sometimes joke and say it's worked really well. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, when we start, our species started out, we were facing ice sheets a mile thick. You know, there were tigers running around the size of small elephants and wolves, you know, that stood six feet at the shoulder. And all we had were pointed sticks and torches and we made it. So clearly the system has some benefits to it. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, so, so I like that, you know, the unease part, when you sort of mentioned that it reminds me of sort of this Buddhist concept of thirst, which is kind of our innate wanting, either wanting to fix something or wanting to have something. Uh, and it sort of keeps us in a state of discomfort, but it makes a lot of evolutionary sense, right? It, it's, it's a driver for us to, to push onward, uh, to not essentially it's, it's a driver against complacency, right? Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, I use the word unease. I use desire and aversion come from in in some mindfulness systems. There's a level of awareness which you're paying attention to, literally that your desire or aversion. It's translated as feeling, but the the instructions really say it's not an emotion. It's the raw. I want to get. I want. They sometimes call it grasping, clinging, and this sort of wanting to push away. It's a, and it's a visceral thing that unease really it, it activates visceral processes 
if you, I sometimes joke, and if you have a, if you have your hand out stretched and someone puts a nice, you know, and you, especially if you like cats and someone puts a little kitten in your hand, there's this, ah, I, you know, you want to pet the kitten. There's this feeling of the body going toward it. Mm-hmm. And if someone puts a, you know, let's say a banana slug in your hand, there's this, bleh. I mean, it's not dangerous. We're not fearful of the banana slug, but there's, yeah, it's, I mean, most people would want to pull their hand back a bit. That's aversion. And it comes in all sorts of intensities. And the stronger it is, the more it motivates us. And you're exactly right. Without, without desire and aversion, we'd, we'd, we'd still be sitting in caves. So we need this. And the fact that our brain enjoys doing things that reduce and, di- and it tends to learn what reduces desire and what reduces aversion, it tends to, hey, do that more. That's a very powerful learning. That's how we learn to walk, for instance. If you, I mean, babies don't think about walking, they start to balance and they get uneasy as they get off balance and their brain does something with their muscles that brings them back on balance and the, the unease goes down, the brain goes, okay, that worked, keep doing that. Yeah. And we learn to walk, we learn to talk, we learn to ride bicycles and all sorts of things because whatever reduces unease, the brain tends to learn more of and says, do that, that was good. We get into trouble though, because in a, com- more, in a system that's more complex than learning how to walk, difficulty and unease may not track very well. So when the baby's learning to walk or I'm learning to ride a bicycle, the demand is stay balanced. My, my, my difficulty is I don't have the resources to balance yet. So the, the demand, the difficulty is high. And whenever I do balance and demands go down, difficulty goes down and unease goes down at the exact same time. So this learning process works. But let's say I've developed this idea that I need to do 100% on every task. Well, right. now the difficulty may be, I'll, get, I'll give an example. I have patients where, you know, they're in, they're in college and they're pushing themselves. I'm, I need to get a perfect, you know, I need to get an A. And I'll ask them, well, what are, what are, what are you taking the course for? Well, I'm just taking it because I need to graduate. Okay, so the grade is really not going to have any effect on your future career. This is just something you're taking to, to graduate. In fact, you're taking it pass fail. Right. So all you need to do, the real demand is just get a P, a pass. Yeah. But so clearly this desire to get a hundred on every single test is overdoing it. You don't need that. You just told me what your difficulty is. Your demand is the demand is get the pass. You don't need a hundred. So there's clearly this feeling, this desire in the, in a, to get 100 or an aversion to not getting 100. And now this aversion to not getting 100 in this pass-fail course is causing problems in other courses because there's too much time being spent on the pass-fail course and not enough time on the course that is actually important for their career. When- the problem is that when they study hard on this pass-fail course, their unease goes down. Mm-hmm. And their brain right. goes, do more of that. Keep doing that. That's, that's, that's what you need to do. Keep doing it because it feels good. So even though there, you might say, my guess is their, their prefrontal cortex can say, yes, I agree. This is not helpful. Their midbrain is going, yes, it is. This is the survival learning that has brought us through, you know, thousands and thousands of years of adversity and keep doing it. This, this feels like the mental wiring for anxiety. You know, of, of, um, you know, I, I'm going to stress out about the future because that will motivate me to do everything that I can, 
uh, to control it. You know what I mean? And in right. some way, I, I'm going to get rewarded for this anxiety that I feel. And so we train ourselves to be anxious. Uh, do, do you think that that's similar to how we, uh, uh, how some of us approach, you know, doing our best and, and approaching our academic, academics and things like that? The world is somewhat uncertain. And so uncertainty raises our unease. And it's the not clear exactly what the demands are. So there is this motivation, well, if I cover, if I just do everything, then I'm going to get everything covered. I'll reduce my unease by doing everything I possibly can. And the problem is we've lost sight of the fact that our reserves are finite. We have to learn, we have to have time to recharge um, that some of these demands we're trying to meet are not really demands in the sense that not meeting them won't have any real effect on our life. And the anxiety, the anxiety is this feedback loop between the unease and then it affects our perception of what the demands really are. So we lose perspective and we overactivate. So we're constantly on edge. We're constantly pushing ourselves. We can't unhook from the unease and the activation and allow that modulation to take effect. So the person's off, they go home from the clinic and they're still, oh yeah, what about this client? Oh, what are they going to post on? So what if I get a bad review? The the behaviors that I tend to see are uh, people staying forever at the vet clinic, you know, not not going home because not every single I is dotted and every T is crossed and there's maybe something else that I could do or I could follow up with this or I could make more detailed notes of, of this conversation that I had. And, and then when they do go home, there's that, to your point, there's the rumination on cases, there's the fear of negative reviews or, or something coming in when they're not there. And, um, and I guess my, my question for you, so it sounds, it sounds like those sort of match this, this sort of stress type uh, behavior. Is this, is this purely habitual in, in your opinion? Or is this a genetic component for some of us? Like how, how do those, how do those things sort out as far as causation? There certainly seems to be a family tendency. So when I get a, you know, I take a family history of someone who has this kind of, this pattern, which I'll call an anxiety pattern. They tend to be anxious, but it's hard to say whether they, whether that's actually in their genes or was imprinted because if the parents imprint, you know, the parents are modeling this kind of behavior, this kind of approach to the world, this way of relating, we're mimics. Children pick up on that very quickly. So, um, to me, what, what's important is it actually can be, un, the person can untrain themselves. So there's a lot of, whether it's genetic or early childhood learning or just practice, the fact is, is that it can be unpracticed. So we can unlearn it. And to do that, what we have to do, the first step is to start really being able to separate unease from difficulty. And that's one of the things I teach my patients early on is, okay, is this about how you feel or is this about what's going to happen in the world? There's some, sometimes the example is, okay, is this going to matter in three days and three years and 10 years? What, do you, what are your real values? What, is, what do you want to make important? Not just what feels important in the moment. So they start to separate, okay, I'm uneasy about this. At the same time, if I really sit down and think about it, this is not important or it's not as important as other things because other things have a higher priority. Yeah. Is it, or, or you say other things are more important because they're more, um, they're more actual, they're more real, right? A lot of times we, we wrestle with the fear of the pet owner writing a negative review 
and they never actually write it and they never had an intention to write it. It's 100% uh, fictional, right? Right, right. Or the person's going to, you know, they're missing out on their family. I, one of the assignments I've done, it's pretty harsh when someone's really <laughs> not distinguishing. And I'm like, okay, so you've got kids. So, okay, let's fast forward for, you know, 50 years. At some point, you're going to be dead. Yeah. And your kids are going to be standing around your, you know, your grave or your headstone or something. What do you want them to be saying? Yeah. You want them to say, mom was just such an awesome vet. She never came home and she spent all her time with her, you know. That's brutal. It's, brutal. it's brutal. It's useful, but man, that that's brutal. But I mean, it's work for some people when they mm-hmm. when they kept you know they kept going to this. Well, no, it's just I can't I can't let go of that that exercise. I mean, in fact, that's that's out of Buddhist training. You, know, you contemplate your death, and yeah, it starts to make you realize. Wait a minute. Or some of my patients who had cancer, and they come in. One patient, I remember her telling me, she goes, "There was BC and AC." Before cancer and after cancer, because she beat the diagnosis. She went, you know, she, I mean, I would say she was cured. Um, but she said, my priority list was very different before I got cancer. Now I know it really matters. And I put my time into what really matters and I'm not getting distracted like I was. Yeah. I, I think that that's, I think that's a really important life lesson. I can tell you, that's something I've struggled with in, in my life. And I think I'm probably not alone, you know, for a, for a sort of a perfectionist type personality, sort of a high achieving goal oriented person, man, that shift from deciding that hanging out and playing board games with my kids matters in a way that um, anything I do in the vet clinic uh, doesn't, you know, like that, that was, that was, that was nonsense to me for a long time. And it's still hard for me, honestly, when I just look at it to to get my head around that idea of what really matters. I feel like I feel like we're so habituated that academics matter, uh, job performance matters. And like those things are just so reinforced. And when they say, go into the park with your kids or taking your spouse on a date, that mm-hmm. seems like that should be the uh that should be the the topping. That should be the last thing that we get to do. We should do that when we've done everything else. And it feels like a bass backwards way to live, but man, it's it's hammered into me pretty well. Oh, I I think people are very well meaning when they do that. You know, parents and teachers there, and they saying, "Don't you know, just do your best, do your best, do your best." Um, I remember, you know, I remember a conversation with somebody where, you know, she was stressing about, you know, this, you know, this English paper she needed, and I'm I'm like, "Well, how are you doing in your English class?" It's like, "Oh, I'm doing really well." And well, you, you know, this is just this is eighth grade. Um, it's not going to matter. Why don't you just put your name on the paper and turn it in? And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, she burst into tears and I'm like, well, what's going on? She was my parent. Everyone tells me, do your best. You know, my parents tell me, do your best. Your teachers tell me, do your best. And you're telling me, don't do your best. And this is, you know, really distressing her. So I pointed out, I said, you know, if you're running a 10 mile race, let's say you're running a, you know, 10 K, you're going to run every kilometer at your best time. You know, you run that first kilometer at your absolutely best one kilometer time and you'll maybe make it through the second kilometer and, you know, and then you're going to be needing, you know, you know, a cardiac rehab unit. Yeah. Um, You pace yourself and pacing yourself. When we say pace yourself, it means you're not doing your best. You're doing good enough. And the reason you pace yourself is that you have energy to do what's really important. I mean, this English paper is really, really, you know, something you're passionate about. Yes. Do your best on it. If it's not, do good enough, and then you'll have the energy to do what you're really passionate about. 
This episode of the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast is brought to you by POP. Guys, POP is a membership service for pet owners. It gives them unlimited 24-7 access to vets for chats, video calls, and texts. Think about the difficulty pet owners have getting in for appointments right now. Think about the uh, the fact that we want them to have good advice and have access to licensed veterinarians for support. And we want care to be affordable. Guys, you can have up to six pets on a POP account also. In the case of an emergency, POP can provide up to $3,000 in financial support for pet owners. Guys, check it out. Learn more about it. POP.com. If you like the service, you want to try it out, you can use my code. I have a promo code. It's Andy Rourke, and it will give you 25% off the first three months. Use it before it expires. This is a limited time code. I hope you'll take a look. Over on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, this week, Stephanie Goss and I are talking about what do you do when the whole team's acting badly? What do you do when everybody's got kind of a crappy attitude and everybody's just sort of feeling down and, and nobody's really being nice to each other, including you? Like, you're, you're kind of part of the team. How do we turn this thing around? Guys, that's what we're talking about. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to this week's episode. Check it out. It's a good one. It's a super fun one. Also, if you just can't get enough of my co-host Stephanie Goss on the podcast, she's amazing. She's fantastic. She is doing a communication foundation workshop on November the 7th from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, 1 to 3 p.m. Pacific time to two-hour workshop. It is all about taking stress and anxiety out of hard conversations and learning eight key elements that you can take back to your practice to build a team that's filled with strong, effective communicators. That's it. That's the workshop. Two hours, eight keys. Hard conversations made a whole lot easier. Do not miss it. This is free to Uncharted members. If you've been on the fence and you're like, maybe I should join Uncharted. Uh, Spoiler alert, you should totally join Uncharted. Uh, But if you're not ready to make that jump, it is $99 for the public, so you can absolutely jump in. Just check out the two hours, see what we're about, see if you like it. I hope that you will. I think you will. I think it's pretty good stuff. Um, That is, again, on November the 7th. Guys, that's enough. Um, Let's get back into this episode. The do your best mantra uh, first of all I, I feel like is strongly positively reinforced early in our lives do you agree with that yes oh yes that's why we learn it so thoroughly <laughs> i mean oh yeah and especially you know the valedictorian uh, you know coming out of college and heading to vet school this is someone who has ascribed completely to this mindset and mentality mm-hmm. and been rewarded for it again and again i i feel like to some degrees those are often the people who struggle the most when you get mm-hmm. into vet medicine where you know the best outcome is often not the one that you get. And it's not going to be the one that you get. You know, the the best outcome involves specialty care and thousands of dollars of treatment. And that's just not going to happen. And and what we have always gone to of do the best, be the best, get the best. Um, I, I feel like that does us a disservice. And also, I think sometimes the the outcome is large, it, not maybe largely, but to some degree, it's outside of our control. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sometimes I tell people, you know, Mother Nature is playing the cards. I mean, I'm just we're just trying to load the deck here, but you know, she's in control of what what cards you're going to get. Well, well, if people buy into this, if, you know, if and I feel like your your rationale is pretty strong. Of um, we we've only we've only got so much that we can control. We've only got so much energy. Uh, and time in a day, we, we need to think about the things that are actually important. And, you know, we, we can't, you can't make everybody happy. And we can't do everything um, to the to the ultimate perfectionist level. Uh, 
how do you how do you help people start to accept that? You know, if if this has been our construct that we've lived in our in our whole lives, and we've always said. I do all the things, I get A's in everything that I do. And now this person is looking around and realizing that that's not happening and they are dropping balls. And I, and I think, I'm sure you've seen those people. I know I've seen those people who are having that realization, you know, in, in their thirties and they, and they're, they're just juggling so many things and, um, and they're really struggling. H- how do you, how do you help people change that worldview when it's so ingrained? Right. So that, the so I said, the first step is to be able to, to get them to objectively, you know, be able to look at what they're doing and realizing, no, this is, I'm, I'm managing my unease, but my, I'm not managing my demands or the difficulty. I'm not, um, those are, I'm, I'm spending way too much energy reducing unease and the important tasks and things like that are, are, some of them are not getting done. The problem that they face though, is that unease tends to hook our attention. Mm-hmm. And let me give a simple example. I mean, this is a simple example, but I think it captures it. Let's say there's a board on the ground. It's 50 feet long. It's about two feet wide. And it's nice and thick. And your task is walk from one end of the board to the other. Okay. That's, that's a very easy task. Now I'm going to take that exact same board, two feet wide, 50 feet long, you know, eight inches thick. It's a real solid board. I'm going to put it up between two skyscrapers. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same task. It's a two foot wide board. There is that's a very easy task for every average adult. The problem is, is when it's between two skyscrapers, we have this extreme aversion to being in that situation. We might fall, and our attention gets hooked by unease. We look down, yeah. And when you look down, your body changes. That activation goes up through the roof. Your heart's pounding, and when your activation's that high, it actually can impair your balance. So now you feel wobbly, you feel lightheaded, and now it's actually a high difficulty task. Yeah, I, um, I, I worked commercial construction uh, back in between, uh, right after, right in between high school and college. And I really, I really liked it, but we were doing, uh, we were building this industrial building. And so we did the footers and the um, concrete mm-hmm. work and then scaffolding. And so we'd put up the scaffolding. And I, I remember being up on the second story of this building and they just had the big steel girders. And these guys I worked with would just walk along these girders. And I, <laughs> I had myself all, all looped in, you know, and it roped in and everything. And I, I distinctly remember saying to one of those guys, how are you, you know, how do you do this? And he says, you just do it. And I said, don't you worry about falling off of this thing? And he said, look at this beam. I don't fall off it when it's on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's what he said to me. And so when you're saying this, uh, it's the exact analogy of the board, because you're right, this beam is, you know, 12 inches wide is is a big surface. To me, I can't get over the the fact that this is two stories in the air. Right. Um, But he he was like, you know, I've seen you walk on these things on the ground and it's not a problem. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's a great analogy of how our mind makes the situation very different. Yes, yes. And so because we have to respect that physiology. That physiology that grabs our attention and draws it in causes us, it's, it, we, we, we may intellectually know, oh, yes, it's, it's fine. I mean, I can walk on this or, or I should really go home. My kids need me. But our attention is grabbed by the unease. And there's actually a physiologic trick to help us unhook. And, um, in fact, I mean, in the law enforcement work, I do, we call this a reset. And I actually learned it in my martial arts training because 
we would, the, my instructor, we'd meet over his house and we'd go into the backyard and it, we always, we generally worked out at night. So we'd go in the backyard or go over to a park and then um, it was heavy contact, no glove sparring. And you'd get very uneasy um, <laughs> because you were going to get yeah. beat up. Yeah. It's just to restate, you would, you would go to someone's house at night and, and, and fight them in the backyard. Uh, and, and that caused you unease. I get that. I get that. Um, especially because he was very, very skilled. Yeah. He's a, he's a martial arts instructor. That makes it, that makes it worse. <laughs> and so what we learned to do is first of all, there's a, you know, the, people do this when they're, they actually do it intuitively. They sigh, they do a long exhale. You know, when we're tense and we want to, we, there's this physiologic release. We'll do it. We take a breath in. We sigh, and there's actually research on this. It does. It, it tends to activate the vagal system, and when someone does it, you often see a bit of a drop in their heart rate for a couple of seconds. And we would we would call it. We would do this breathing, and then we ground. We'd feel the and instead of when feeling stressed, you you're you're feeling uneasy. You feel like a soap bubble. You're up. Your your shoulders come up. You feel like you're up in your head, and you're not really grounded or not connected to the earth. And so we would just make sure our attention was grounded. It's like where are you supported? You're not floating. You're on your feet, or you're sitting down. And you're seated on the chair. The earth is, the earth has got you. See so this long exhale, and you ground. And what it does is it helps your attention unhook from what's grabbing it. So you have this couple of seconds to unhook from the unease and focus on the difficulty. Wait, what is really going, what's really important here? And what are the resources I have to deal with this instead of I just have to handle this perfectly? And you reset and then you reorient or refocus and then you choose a response. And what's nice about the reset is you can do it every few seconds if you have to. When I'm I mean, there are times when I've got a patient on my mind, someone who's not doing well, someone I'm worried about, or, you know, are they going to try to kill themselves? And I'm at home and trying to interact with my family and my attention, I'll feel it. It will go and I'll just reset. No, back to the family. Yeah. I've done, I've done what I can. The person said they, they, they've contracted to call me. They said they would be at the next appointment. I can't do anything more. That's good enough. That's what, that's what, that's what I have to limit. Those are my limitations back to the family. And then 30 seconds later, my mind reset back to the family, long exhale, ground, where am I? What's going, okay, I'm here. This is where I need to be. This is where my attention is going to be. And what's nice is after a few resets, generally my mind says, okay, okay, okay. I get it. Spend time with family. Does does it get easier over time? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I go through those those processes as well of trying to, you know, trying to set these things down and, and reset. Can, can this become a learned habit of making it easier to, to sort of set this, uh, this unease down? Uh, or, or is it always, or is it always a struggle? Well, it seems to be, first of all, my patients tell me that when they've practiced, they get better. And so the first step, again, being able to separate difficulty unease and really get skilled at that be able to identify, no, 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 wait a minute, I'm just getting caught up in what feels good, what feels important, what's, what are my priorities, what are my values, what's going on in the big picture. Okay, so they're getting, their mind gets better at doing that. And at first, it's interesting, I'll ask people, um, okay, is that difficulty or is that unease? And they'll go, well, that's difficulty. And like, wait, it's really more about how you feel, isn't it? Oh, yeah. oh, okay. So 
that's a mental skill. And these, that, that has to start, that has to become more and more reflexive. We can't, you know, if we have to sit down and do a cognitive exercise on a piece of paper, it's not a reflex. So mm-hmm. we have to make that, that distinguish, the ability to distinguish difficulty and ease more and more automatic. The reset has to become automatic too. It's, it's like balancing. If you're on a bicycle at first, you, you get off balance and you, you, you reset, you, re, you rebalance. And you don't notice you're getting off balance until you're pretty far off balance. And then you have to work really hard to get off, you know, get back over your balance point. And sometimes you overcorrect and go the other way and then you're wobbling. When you're skilled on a bicycle, you don't notice that you're, your brain notices that you're getting off balance without you even knowing it's doing that. Your brain says, I'm getting off balance and it recorrects. So you're, you're never mm. balanced perfectly over your two tires when you're riding. You're always wobbling. Your brain has gotten so skilled at noticing when it's off and recorrecting that it looks like you're just perfectly balanced on the bicycle. So this reset, you have to start getting a sense of, okay, what's my, what's my attention on? Oh, I'm getting pulled in. You do a reset. And the reset's very unobtrusive. It doesn't have to be this long. It's just, hmm, okay. It's this sense of, Long, the exhale's a bit longer, I'm grounded. There's actually a sense of space around me. The world's not crowding in, you know, the, the client's not right in my face. The, situa- the, 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 the situation I'm dealing with is not right crowding. It's like, oh, I got some space around me. I'm, I probably got some time too. And so yeah. we make a habit of balancing and, and you know, re- resetting, resetting, resetting. There's actually, um, when I was, we have this heart rate tracing. So the law enforcement work I do, we train uh, law, you know, first responders, medical first responders, law enforcement first responders to avoid making mistakes under pressure. And one of the things we teach, you know, the, the central thing we teach them is how to reset and then re- re- we call reset, refocus, respond. And what's interesting, I was demoing this and one of our the police officers, he was our use of force instructor and he was pretending to be a psychotic patient and having a psychotic break. And I was going to walk up to him and try to help. And then he was going to attack me. And I'm wearing a heart rate monitor and we can see my heart rate on the screen as I'm walking toward him. And, you know, my pulse is starting to go up, you know, well, you know, it's shooting up over a hundred because I know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you can see it drops. There's this, it drops down, it drops by 20, 30 beats per minute. So we're, this is the, the graph is beat to beat heart rate. So the heart rate's going up beat by beat up over 100, 110, 120. And then it suddenly drops four or five heartbeats. It's dropped. And then it comes up again and then it drops and then it comes up again and then it drops. And I'm walking toward him and engaging and I'm doing this reset without even knowing I'm doing it. I'm just resetting as I'm walking into the scene. And then he attacks me and my heart rate shoots up to 160 and then we disengage and then it comes down. Um, and that's something we see in in some of this research we're doing. It the the person's their heart rate doesn't they don't get relaxed. Their heart rate doesn't go from 120 and then go down to 80 or 70 and just stay there because you need to be activated. You need to have this activation so you can draw energy. You're 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 awake. You're alert. You're tracking things, but you're also modulating that activation so that you're able to keep track of what's important not to just focused on what's making you uneasy and then misperceive things and see things that are a threat when they're not really a threat. I mean, in law enforcement, that's obvious why you don't want to do that. But in vet right. medics too, the client, you know, the client comes in and they're uneasy. 
because they're maybe they're nervous about their animal. Maybe they're nervous about how much it's going to cost. Maybe they're nervous because they're taking time off from work or they have to get to daycare. There's all sorts of reasons why they could be uneasy. And if we go in and we get we think they're uneasy because they're upset with us, now we've misperceived the situation. Now, instead of going, whoa, wait a minute, let me check. What, what's, what's the client really nervous about or really uneasy about? Or are they that uneasy at all? Or maybe they're just rushed or maybe they're tired. So that, you know, that ability to reset and refo- and then start checking things out. What's what's really going on? What's the real difficulty? Not just, oh, I'm I'm I'm, I'm nervous about this, and I'm gonna my brain starts creating a mirage that I then believe and you know get all involved in and 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 go wrong uh, with with not so good results. But that's that's really helpful. Let me. So I th- I think I think it's been fantastic. Let me. I think we'll we'll leave it here. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, Doctor Joe Arpea. Where can people um, where can people read your work? Where can where can they learn more? Well, I have a I have a very disorganized blog at fullcapacityliving.com. and I'm I've got some people helping me create a more organized site at ibernetics.com, and it's i b e r n e t i c s ibernetics, and that's actually a play on cybernetics. So cybernetics is, you know, like the communication and control protocols in machines and ibernetics is the communication and control protocols within ourselves. So we, it's just a nerdy. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. And I'm, you know, keep up your work. It's really great. And you're doing, I mean, I was looking at some of your other podcasts before this and it, you, the stuff you're doing is so good and so important. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And that is our episode. That's what we got for you. I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, As always, the nicest thing you can do is if you did get something out of it, uh, leave us an honest review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It really does mean a lot. We really do appreciate it. Guys, take care of yourselves. Be well. Talk to you next week. Bye.